Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Warning some of the neighbors of some of his tendencies and telling them he's the type of guy you might need to stay away from, that he could be dangerous in the future. Do you ever sit down and just reminisce about your childhood? Have you ever found yourself thinking about those carefree days when you didn't have much to worry about other than making it home before dark after riding BMX bikes or playing basketball with your friends all day? It's common for us as adults to look back to simpler times when we had no responsibilities other than getting to class before the bell rang or making sure our report cards were in good enough standing to present to our parents or caretakers at the end of the term. A lot of us have some of our fondest memories waking up as a child, scarfing down a bowl of sugary cereal just before running out the front door to catch the big yellow school bus as it pulled up with 20 familiar neighborhood kids yelling our names aloud greeting us from the sliding windows. We tend to associate the school bus as a physical representation of a safe haven, a symbol of childhood innocence. Many of us utilize this form of transportation today as adults, sending our own kids off to their respective places of learning years later as parents. It's a natural concept to entrust our public school system, faculty, and the services they provide to make sure the kids of our own communities get to where they need to be safely and efficiently. Certainly all good parents worry about their children, but have you ever viewed that ride on the big yellow school bus as a place where something potentially life-threatening could ever occur? Evil is, after all, lurking everywhere. If you're an avid listener of this podcast, you've certainly learned that by now. The sad reality is that there is no location off-limits for those looking to commit heinous crimes. The folks of Midland City, Alabama were forced to reckon with this frightening truth back in 2013 when an odd neighborhood man decided to carry out an attack that was so terrifying it left a community of just over 2,000 people scarred for life, forever attributing and burning the image of that yellow school bus into their minds. Not as something innocent, but as a vessel of terror that facilitated an act of brutality at the hands of one very deranged individual. January 29, 2013, in Midland City, Alabama, roughly two hours south of the state's capital of Montgomery, school bus driver Charles Poland, a 66-year-old retired diesel mechanic, was finishing up his route, dropping off kids following a school day that seemed like any other. A homemade roundabout-type rotary had been constructed out of dirt by an accommodating neighbor, meant to help bus number 0-42 more easily turn around after dropping off his last group of children. Charles Poland was a man that liked to stay busy. He loved his part-time job driving for his local community, and all of the kids loved Charles. He wanted to keep working to save a little extra money before his wife was set to retire. The children on the bus knew him as Chuck, politely greeting him every morning 
and saying goodbye as they hopped off and ran into the arms of their loved ones waiting for them every afternoon. But at 3.36 p.m. this particular Tuesday, before he could get everyone off the bus, and as he was about to swing the big diesel engine around via the makeshift U-turn, he was stopped in his tracks by a man that he knew, who came rapping on the glass doors. Having recognized the individual, Charles opened the doors to greet him. What he didn't know was that that man was holding a 9mm Ruger handgun hidden away in the palm of his hand until he found himself staring down the barrel of it. Confused yet calm, Charles Poland softly asked the man what he was doing as not to alarm the children. The man said nothing at first, but clearly agitated, handed the bus driver a note. The more than 10 children on the bus gazed forward, trying to figure out just exactly what was going on. But after roughly five minutes of conversation between the two, the children soon realized they were in grave danger. And before they could react, shots rang out. So who was this man that stormed a school bus filled with children on a Tuesday afternoon in Alabama? His name? Jimmy Lee Dykes, a sickly-looking 65-year-old ex-Navy veteran who stood at around 5 foot 8 inches tall. Ironically, this was the same man who was awarded a good conduct medal for his time spent in Vietnam. The instinctive reaction to hearing these horrifying sounds of gunfire from the school bus surveillance camera audio is that there must have been some sort of bad blood or conflict between Jimmy Lee Dykes and school bus driver Charles Poland. However, this presumption couldn't be further from the truth. It was quite the opposite, in fact. See, Poland and Dykes were actually friends, or at least friendly with one another. They were neighborly acquaintances, if you will. Poland was one of the only people in town that ever spoke to Dykes. Jim had a couple of friends, but for the most part, the majority of people in town only knew him as Mean Man, an angry loner who was said to patrol his property at night with his handgun and flashlight, just waiting for someone or something to come onto his property. He canvassed his yard with the very same firearm he now stormed the school bus with on this day. We're clearly not describing a warm and friendly individual here. And although everyone in Midland City seemed to know one another in this small town, most residents only had negative things to say about Dykes, if anything at all. Everyone except for Charles Poland, that is. Until this happened. Dykes grew up in Dothan, Alabama, roughly 10 miles outside of Midland City. After his time in the Navy, he moved to Florida, where he worked as a surveyor and truck driver for a long-haul transport company. He had fallen out of touch with all of his immediate family, only revealing to neighbors later on that he had told them all to, quote, go to hell, with no further context provided. He had a daughter named Cindy, but she hadn't spoke with her father in many years. After a tumultuous childhood, and witnessing Dykes put her mother in the hospital several times, after beating her on a consistent basis upon his return home from the service. It's obvious to see why the family's foundation had crumbled. While in Florida, Dykes had a couple run-ins with the law, but nothing major, only consisting of a misdemeanor weapons charge back in 1995 for an unregistered handgun, and another arrest for marijuana in the year 2000. He would eventually move back to Alabama in 2011, where he purchased a one-acre plot of land on the edge of a peanut field. 
He rotated his living quarters from a red, broken-down conversion van to sleeping inside of a busted-up, rusty camper. Just after acquiring the land, Dykes was seen by locals frequently digging and moving cinder blocks around almost daily. He was building an underground bunker, with the help of only one local man by the name of Michael Creel. After the two had completed the foundation of the build, Dykes asked Creel to step down to the bottom of the bunker and scream as loud as he could. Creel was confused, yet agreed. After Dykes closed the plywood hatch, Creel yelled at the top of his lungs, but not a sound was heard by Dykes above. Upon exiting the bunker, Creel remembers seeing a smile on Dykes's face, having been pleasantly surprised and satisfied that no noise was audible from up above. When asked why the bunker was being built by the few folks that would interact with Dykes, after noticing the constant commotion of construction, he told them he was building a shelter for inclement weather, as he had become accustomed to hurricanes while living down in Florida. He claimed that he simply wanted to be prepared, which struck folks as odd, knowing that this region of Alabama very seldomly saw the kinds of harsh weather conditions that would warrant such an underground cement doomsday structure. This could have passed as at least somewhat of a rational explanation. However, Hurricane Ivan did leave parts of Alabama with its fair share of destruction back in 2004. Then again, that damage was mostly seen in Baldwin County, some three hours southwest of Midland City, located just 11 miles from the beaches of the Gulf Coast, an area certainly more prone to storms as opposed to the inland region, where Dykes was allegedly seeking refuge. Nevertheless, Jimmy Lee Dykes was not the type of man you'd want to question or sit down and chat about masonry or the weather with over a cold glass of sweet tea or beer. In fact, this was the last guy you'd want at your barbecue, and for obvious reasons. Jimmy Dykes once brutally beat his neighbor Rhonda's dog Max to death with a steel pipe when the family pet wandered onto his land. After this incident, the only known people to speak with Dykes were his one true friend of 13 years, a local man named Roger Arnold, among a few others in passing, including his acquaintance, the friendly school bus driver, Charles Poland. Charles was nice to everyone. He presumably saw the old Navy vet as a struggling old man that had somehow lost his way. So when Dykes offered Poland to personally build him a circular dirt path in his yard to help him reroute the bus during his daily drive, he was grateful and accepted the gesture. Let's face it, maneuvering a 24,000-pound vehicle down any road surely can't be easy, never mind off a remote and narrow trail just wide enough for the vehicle to fit on. Poland appreciated this act of kindness from the individual everyone else in town had written off simply as mean man. Maybe Dykes wasn't so bad after all. Perhaps he was turning a new leaf or finally changing his ways. One day after work, Poland decided to repay the man by bringing him some fresh farm eggs and other goods, delivering them to Dykes personally as a thank you for helping make his workday a little more pleasant. Dykes wasn't around at the time, so he'd written him a note, sketched on a Dugco Supply wholesale tire receipt, leaving the gifts on the front seat of Jim's van. I am Chuck Poland, the school bus driver. Sorry I missed you. Left some eggs and macadamias, jelly on the front seat of your van for you. See you later. Signed, Chuck Poland. Chuck's phone number was sketched at the bottom of the note. It would soon become evident that the good deeds of at least one of these men held more than just the intent of good old Southern hospitality. Charles Poland would eventually find that he was on the wrong end of this deal and that he was simply a pawn, one part of an evil plot Dykes had been calculating carefully in his mind 
for quite some time. December 10th, 2013. James Davis Jr., his infant daughter, and Davis's mother, Claudia Davis, were driving their truck down the road, passing Dyke's property when suddenly they hit something in the street. As they slowed down as a result of barreling over an object in the road, Davis noticed a man in his rearview mirror flagging him down, waving his arms frantically as if to motion the driver to back up to speak with him. That man was, of course, no other than Jim Dykes. Dykes had purposefully built a man-made speed bump out of dirt in the right lane on the public road, meant to slow passing drivers who he felt were going too fast by his property. When Dykes approached Davis's vehicle, an argument broke out after the old man loudly began reprimanding the young driver for the rate of speed at which he had been traveling by. Here's James Davis Jr. himself, recalling the incident to reporters, an occurrence that quickly took a violent turn, escalating to much more than just a verbal altercation. Uh, I was coming down and uh, he said my truck had spun out you know, over a hill that he had built. And uh, I stopped, he flagged me down, and he began cussing at me, using harsh words, and I tried to calm him down, tell him that my six-month-old daughter was in the back. Mr. Dykes began, kept on, kept on, and, you know, I kind of raised my voice, and when I raised my voice, Mr. Dykes took off running to his van, pulled a pistol, and then I took off, and when I took off, he then fired twice. In a violent rage, Dykes fired two shots at Davis's vehicle as the driver sped off. Luckily, no one was injured during this bizarre outburst, but it was clear at this point now more than ever that Jimmy Lee Dykes had very little compassion for human life, including children, as there was a six-month-old infant present at the car during the interaction. This would only be a chilling precursor of events yet to come in Midland City, Alabama, just over one month later, when that big yellow school bus came down Dykes Road just after 3.30 p.m., as it always had right on schedule. January 28, 2013, Jimmy Lee Dykes was set to appear in court, facing weapons charges for the assault on the Davis family, where he discharged two rounds aimed at their truck. But Dykes never showed. Fearing that he may be facing jail time, and under the impression that a warrant surely would be out for his arrest for not appearing in court, Dykes became desperate and paranoid. It was at this point that the 65-year-old man, decided the time had come to set his secretive plan into motion. Dykes had been gaining the trust of his so-called friend, Charles Poland, right up until that following morning, January 29, 2013, the day of the shooting. As Poland began his route, picking up the children to bring them to school, Dykes approached the bus to engage in a casual conversation, referencing the dirt round he had built for Poland's bus, also mentioning that he'll be returning the favor for the eggs left by Poland, with some fresh greens of his own, Dykes intended on gifting him. How you doing, sir? I like that. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Do you like broccoli and carrots? Yeah, I like broccoli. And with that, Chuck was off. Dykes had planted his final seed of kindness. 
He patiently waited out the remainder of the day, anticipating the school bus's return to drop the children off that afternoon. And sure enough, just as it always had, the bus returned just like clockwork. At 3.30 p.m., only hours after the two men were heard having a casual exchange about vegetables, Charles Poland was seen turning off the dirt path Dykes had built for him. Just then, Jim sprung into action. Before the bus made it back out onto the main road, Jim stopped him after running up to the bus doors and gaining entry into the vehicle. With his 9mm handgun and a handwritten note that filled up nearly an entire page of loose-leaf paper, he handed it to the bus driver. Remain calm, act natural, and read. I have a story to tell. Need two hostages to force the powers that be to listen. You will choose two smart, well-mannered, good kids, ages 6 to 10, preferably boys with no physical, mental, or medical problems. You will connect them at the wrist with this tie and bring them forward. Then I will leave the bus. You will immediately drive down the road and call the law. No harm will come to the kids. When the story is finished, they will go free, and then I will die. Do exactly what I say, and please do not make any wrong moves. I do not want to shoot you. I do not want to traumatize the kids any more than absolutely necessary. Now get this done as soon as possible. My cell phone number is 904-127. My name is Jim Dykes. Take a deep breath. You can do this. Again, do not mess this up, and no one will be harmed. P.S. Thanks, Chuck. I'm extremely sorry, but I have to do this. Please don't make me do something I don't want to do. Don't ask me anything. Don't tell me anything. Just do it. Charles read the note in its entirety as Dyke stood before him with his Ruger in one hand and now a bundle of black zip ties that he had pulled from his pocket in the other. Chuck didn't know what to make of this. Was this man joking? Clearly not, as indicated by the handgun. But why on earth did he want two children? Regardless, Poland was seemingly unfazed by the request and courageously refused Dykes' demands, despite having a handgun now pointed directly at his head. Charles remained calm. Listen to this frightening audio captured from the camera inside the school bus as the interaction unfolded. I want two kids, six, eight years, six, eight years old. Now I mean, right now, right now. I need two boys, six to eight years old. Two boys, come on. Can't do it. Do it. Sorry. You can have a shoot. It's my responsibility. I can't help that. I can't help turn them over to somebody else. Dykes is heard ordering two children from the back of the bus to come forward. But no one moves, and Charles Poland does not waver. The bus driver is never heard raising his voice, surely an attempt to keep the man calm as well as to not scare the children. But as the moments pass... Dykes begins to panic. Roughly one minute after Dykes stormed onto the school bus, 15-year-old student Trey Watts quietly calls 911 from his cell phone, hidden away behind his seat, reporting that there was a crazed man on the bus demanding children as hostages while pointing a loaded gun at their driver. Tell me what the guy with the gun's doing again. He's asking for kids. He's asking for kids? Yes, ma'am. School 
Has he made it onto the bus? Yes, ma'am. Is he asking for a certain child, like his child, or just wanting kids in general? What's the description of the guy with the gun? Uh, he's tall, white, has sunglasses on. Okay, a white male with sunglasses. What's he wearing? Very brave. You're doing good, okay? Thank you. When the two children he was initially fixated on refused to come forward, he focused instead on a different boy, five-year-old Ethan Gilman of Midland City Elementary School. He demands the boy sitting in the seat directly behind Charles Poland to leave the bus with him. Poland continues to stand his ground. He is then heard on the tape stating, quote, No, not Ethan. He's scared. Hang in there, okay? What's he doing now? He's yelling. He says the law's coming. He's yelling because the law's coming? Yes, ma'am. Oh my gosh, what's going on? Dykes is then heard continuously insisting to Poland that he will not be harmed if he simply complies. Poland repeats himself by stating, quote, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Just then, Dykes begins screaming. Don't do it. No, as he continues to aim the gun at the bus driver, hyping himself up for what he is about to do next. Once convinced that police are surely on their way, and after realizing that Poland isn't giving up any of the children willingly, Dykes fires five shots at the bus driver. Charles Poland slumps over in his seat and Dykes quickly grabs the arm of five-year-old Ethan, escaping from the bus with the child in tow. Okay, is he on the bus? Or did he take the kid off the bus? He took the kid off the bus. He took the kid off the bus. <laughs> is the bus driver the only person that was shot? Yeah. Was the bus driver the only person that was shot? Yes, ma'am. Okay, is the bus driver the only person that was shot? Hang in there, honey. You're doing so good. I'm so proud of you, okay? As the children are seen on the surveillance camera, slowly raising their heads from behind their seats used as cover, they begin looking out the windows to their right in terror, witnessing Mean Man sprint up the dirt road and onto his property, carrying Ethan in his arms. Once the coast is clear, the children flee from the back of the bus to the front exit, screaming aloud as they are forced to run past their friend and bus driver, Chuck, who now lay lifeless in the front seat, bleeding out. The boys and girls scattered in all directions, trying to make it to safety off the remote Alabama dirt road. Police were already en route as word went out over the police radio. Before responders arrived at the scene, they received yet another 911 call. But this time, it came from the man who had just abducted a young child, Jimmy Lee Dykes himself. 911, where's your emergency? Medic 1, 911. Yeah, this is Jim Dykes. I'm sorry? This is Jim Dykes. I'm at 1539 Private Road. 502, you're screaming. We can't understand you. I'm at 1539 Private Road. Yes. Okay, yes, sir. What's going on? Uh, I have a hostage. Uh, I got the suspect on the phone. 
And it, I tried to tell that brother, no, he did not do, he did not do what I needed to do. Sir, what, what's wrong? What's going on? I have a, this thunder, thunder light 256 at the front gate. You will find a white post there that you can talk through on a, you can talk through. I'm in an underground bunker. You're in an underground bunker? Okay, yeah. sir, you have a child with you? Yes. Okay, what's your name, sir? Jim Dykes, and uh... Okay, sir, where are you, what's your address? Uh, 256, Road 1539. I'm simulcasting. Okay, sir. Sir. Yeah. Central, all units, be advised. I have suspect on 911. 256, Private Road 1539. 256, Private Road 1539 is armed. Does but Jim Dykes calls back just moments later. Now, one one, where's your emergency? Yes, this is Jim Dykes again. Yes, sir. When the, when the cops get here, they can talk to me. They can talk with me. They stop at the front gate. Jessica, they join in. They stop there and Jessica. they talk to a white post, a white TV site, pipe sticking up, and I can talk through that pipe to them. I won't be talking anymore on the phone, okay? Now, talk to me through that pipe. Got it? Okay, sir. Okay. Sir. Okay. Jim Dykes had made it all the way down inside of his underground bunker, with Ethan Gilman in tow. As confirmed from his own statements on the 911 call, this was now officially an urgent and active hostage situation. Here is Sergeant Rachel David with the Dothan, Alabama Police, on the scene, along with several other neighboring departments, providing the first update to the press the evening of the abduction. Authorities say the call was received regarding a shooting involving a Dale County school bus at 3.36 p.m. At this time, limited details are being released. However, the Sheriff's Department has confirmed one adult male was shot and the suspect is not in custody. Charles Poland had been killed and Ethan was inside of the bunker. Police feared the worst not only because Dykes had barricaded himself inside, such a crude homemade structure with a child, but because Ethan also had special needs. He was on the autism spectrum. After notifying the family, they expressed this immediate concern and urgency to the police, as Ethan had been known to act out behaviorally due to his diagnosis. Before authorities could properly contain a perimeter on the outskirts of the bunker, they noticed the school bus with its doors wide open and the body of deceased Charles Poland still inside. As stated during Dyke's 911 call, he demanded police approach the PVC pipe which was approximately 170 feet away from the bunker itself. The pipe protruded and ran a few feet from the entrance of his property at an old cattle gate used to block off Dyke's land from the public. 
the pipe traveled from the gate underground and led all the way down inside of the bunker. Dykes demanded this device be used as a form of communication between himself and the police, but Lieutenant Bill Rafferty was hesitant to approach the camp any closer, not knowing if the PVC pipe had potentially been rigged with explosives or held any other sort of threat to authorities. The Federal Bureau's investigation unit arrived soon after and promptly set up their home base at a local church. Lieutenant Rafferty was the first to speak with Dykes, and it was also the first hostage negotiation of his career. After being left with no other option, Rafferty was forced to speak with Dykes through the PVC pipe. Dykes demanded a female reporter be sent down into the bunker with him, alone, in order to record his message, a manifesto that he required be delivered to the entire world via news media. The bunker itself had six cinder block steps, leading up to a mound of dirt that had a latched door on the earth's surface. Dykes had lifted the latch and stepped into a hole that was approximately six feet wide, eight feet long, and 12 feet deep with Ethan carried on his back. Police quickly realized there was only one way in and one way out of the bunker. That one makeshift hatch was the only entrance that separated police from Ethan and his abductor. As negotiators worked to keep Dykes calm, they knew they couldn't risk another human life by allowing a female reporter to enter the bunker. This simply was not an option. They tried to keep his emotions at bay, while other investigators began promptly conducting interviews with Midland City residents to see if anyone had actually seen the inside of the bunker. Knowing the layout would better ensure a successful rescue mission, as their goal was not to go inside blindly. They eventually got a hold of Michael Creel, the man who helped Dykes build the bunker. Reporters then spoke with the man who Dykes had fired two shots at roughly a month before, James Davis Jr. He told the media that Dykes had shown him the bunker and that he had been inside of it at one point during its early construction. Davis provided a vivid description of what the bunker's interior actually looked like. I asked him what he was using it for, and he said where he used to live, there was a bunch of storms and stuff. He just wanted to be secure and know that he had somewhere for one come. Do you believe that? At the time, yes, I did. But I kind of had my second thoughts to believe that he didn't because why would you just build a dirt hole? That wouldn't keep the storm away from you with a plywood roof on it. The bunker is about 15 foot by 15 foot. About 10 to 12 foot deep. It's lined with bricks, red bricks. Uh, it has cinder block steps going down to it. And he uses plywood. At the time, he had plywood for the roof. And it, it has a piece of PVC pipe coming out of it to his front gate where he uses. He told me that he used it to listen if somebody comes up to his gate while he's working in the hole. The little boy, I imagine he's scared to death. He's He don't know what to do. He's panicking. I imagine if, if he does fall asleep, if he can fall asleep, he has nightmares all night long. I know he's crying, he wants his family and everything. And uh, it's it's just a mess. I, at the time when I seen it, there was nothing in the hole, but just, just what, the hole. What do you want to say to him if he's watching? I want to say to you, if you are watching, I hope they get you and I hope that you live the rest of your life in prison and you never see the, the day of light again. And you're going to pay for what you did to this little boy and that bus driver, and especially to me and my family. After speaking with Davis, Michael Creel, and the few others that knew Dykes personally in the town, it was revealed that he had a set of twin-sized bunk beds down below. Dykes had also rigged up electricity, a television with very few channels, 
as well as food and supplies that presumably could last him for weeks. When speaking to Creel, the man also revealed that during the construction of the bunker years before, Dykes had confessed his frustrations towards government to him, particularly his anger toward a new gun law that had recently been passed. Dykes told Creel that he wanted to kidnap someone and had thoughts of doing so after a Sunday church service let out. He continued on by saying that he felt this was the only way he'd get the public to listen about his disdain for the law. Creel seemed to shrug this off at the time and told Dykes that no one would listen to him if he were to actually take a hostage. He remembers Dykes being visibly upset by his response, and the two drove the rest of the way home in silence. With this newfound knowledge, authorities knew they needed to tread lightly and continued to attempt their reasoning with Dykes. But he wasn't coming out. Rafferty carried out several conversations through the PVC pipe, but Dykes was quick to threaten that if anyone were to attempt a gaining entry by force, they would indeed be met with a, quote, loud boom. After negotiations failed to reach any mutual agreement, Dykes spoke for the last time that evening, telling police that he was done talking at around 9 p.m. After midnight, Agent Mike Harris crawled on his stomach to approach the pipe, looking down inside, trying to gain a visual and hoping to potentially hide a microphone and small camera inside in order to see what was going on in the hideout below. But upon closer examination, Agent Harris noticed something that resembled an explosive. There's something inside this pipe. He reported back to Lieutenant Rafferty as he quickly yet quietly made his retreat away from the piping. Bomb experts soon brought in an x-ray machine, revealing that there was indeed gunpowder, a makeshift bomb, and what seemed to be a trigger wire closest to Dykes. Investigators then realized Dykes' persistence in using this method of communication may have actually been a trap intended to kill members of law enforcement. After the discovery was made, a new plan of action was called into effect, and as authorities worked around the clock, creating a makeshift mock-up of the bunker, hidden by tarps and temporary fencing, they drew up a blueprint using the little information they had. Ethan's family was forced to go to sleep that night, not knowing what was going on in that dirt hole or what the outcome would be for their little boy. Day 2, Wednesday, January 30th, 2013. There would be no more PVC pipe chats between law enforcement and the old man. The bomb discovery ended any further close-up and personal conversations that could potentially kill authorities in the process. Later on that morning, the FBI configured a talkback radio and a speaker connected to a stand directly facing the mouth of the pipe, allowing agents to communicate with Dykes, now from a safer distance. This was a unique mission for all personnel involved. It's not like there were any windows to see what was going on, or any view for an armed sniper to get a clear shot of their subject. As night fell yet again in Midland City, Sheriff Wally Olson of Dale County, Alabama, held a press conference updating the public of the situation at hand. Unfortunately, with not much news other than that a child was being held hostage, and that Dykes still had no plans of coming out from his hole in the ground, police had no choice but to wait and plan. You know, right now we still don't have anything to really update you with, but we, we just wanted to come over. You know, uh, we got a lot of volunteers, you know, even the, 
as much as the land that we're standing on right now, people have been good enough to, to work with us through all this. And the law enforcement agencies, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, all the private businesses that's brought in food for the volunteers and the workers and law enforcement. You know, it's just a multiple agencies here and, you know, people helping out and stuff like that, you know, just a multitude of people. Again, you know, we really don't have a whole lot to, to add. And, I mean, I hate to tell you that. I mean, that's, well, that's the way it is. But I do appreciate your continued support and effort, and I know it's getting cold out here, so uh, I don't, really can't take a lot of questions because we've got a lot going on, but thank you. The public was doing everything in their power to assist Ethan's family, as well as law enforcement, to make sure this little boy came out of that bunker unscathed. Folks had come from far and wide, some even offering to take the place of Ethan in exchange for the five-year-old child. Dykes was clearly a dangerous man wanted for murder and was now facing kidnapping charges. There was no telling what he was capable of doing next. One of the only frightening characteristics authorities were aware of was that Dykes was a man of his word. He threatened to kill Charles Poland if he didn't give up any children. When he refused, Dykes did just that. That same day, reporters were able to speak with Rhonda Wilbur, Dykes' neighbor whose dog had been brutally murdered by the callous old man. She remembered the individual she'd only known as Mean Man, threatening to shoot any dog that crossed onto his property. She also recalled Dykes leaving out bowls of antifreeze, a peculiar and more cruel method to harm animals looking to drink during the scorching Alabama summer months. Listen as she gives her thoughts to the media in regards to the subject at large during the ongoing hostage situation. Very antisocial, very anti-government, hates everybody. My granddaughter who just turned seven, when I have her visiting me this next weekend, I won't have to worry about mean man. One way or another, he's not going to be there. He will either be locked up or he'll be dead. While it was certainly true that mean man was not currently a threat to her family and would be coming out of that hole in the ground one way or another, dead or alive, Authorities were only willing to accept the latter in regards to the fate of five-year-old Ethan. On top of having Asperger's syndrome, he was asthmatic as well, and currently without his medication. After hours of back-and-forth discourse between Dykes and negotiators, he finally agreed to allowing supplies to be sent down for Ethan. The items included his medication, a Disney Cars coloring book with some crayons, and snacks including Ethan's favorite, a bag of Cheetos. Dykes also allowed the FBI to send down a phone so they could better communicate, as it began raining and the feed from the radio speaker set up near the PVC pipe was beginning to short out. When Dykes lifted the latch, only to partially receive the goods, investigators received their first glance into the hole, but could only see the set of cinder block steps leading down into the dark bunker. Dykes quickly slammed the door shut, reassuring the FBI that the boy was safe, for now at least. He continued his strange demand of requesting a female reporter joining him in the bunker during phone conversations with investigators. He told them he would have the reporter record his message, broadcast it to the world, and once he was satisfied his gospel was delivered appropriately, he would place a plastic bag filled with helium over his own head as the woman held his hand until Dykes perished by asphyxiation. Dykes spoke of his suicide constantly. They even tried to fool him by having a female FBI agent pose as a reporter on the next phone call, 
but Dykes somehow figured out that the woman on the other end was not media personnel at all, and so he angrily hung up. He called back at around 6 p.m. that evening, stating something to the effect of, It was all lies, wasn't it? It was at this point that Dykes cut off all communication with the FBI temporarily, and five-year-old Ethan was still underground with the ex-Vietnam vet, Jimmy Lee Dykes, trapped inside of a 12-foot hole that may or may not be rigged to explode at any moment. During the third and fourth day, authorities were finally able to get Dykes back on the phone. Lieutenant Rafferty picked up with the suspect right where they had left off. He tried to keep Dykes on the phone as long as possible, figuring as long as he was talking to someone, he was preoccupied. Over the course of the next two days, Rafferty spoke to Dykes for up to nine hours per day on the phone. Their conversations ranged from casual topics, such as the Jerry Springer show, to Dykes' detestment of the federal government, and of course his disagreements with gay marriage in the United States. Rafferty quickly shifted the dialogue back to the kidnapping at hand, reminding Dykes of the reason they were here chatting in the first place. Rafferty promised Dykes that if he emerged, the FBI would arrange for cameras to record his message immediately upon his exit from the bunker. No dice. Dykes still wanted a female reporter, and subsequently planned to commit suicide once those demands were met. He had no plans of going to prison, and for the FBI, this was the scariest part of all. Things escalated when Dykes again threatened to set off one of his homemade explosive devices, if authorities had any intention of storming the bunker, divulging that he indeed did have a second bomb inside. A separate explosive, aside from that, still inside the PVC pipe. He told Rafferty repeatedly that Ethan was doing fine, and that he had been frying him chicken to eat, using a propane tank and gas burner. This was clearly no place for a five-year-old autistic child. And as the winter temperatures began to plummet, the fact of the matter was that the boy was still not home, and the patience of negotiators was wearing thin. They knew this could not and would not go on much longer. The outcome of this child abduction and hostage situation was still as unclear as it was the day it all began. Day 5, Saturday, February 2nd, 2013. January's page on the year's calendar had just been turned, and still no resolution had been made. As a routine drop-off for Ethan's medicine commenced, just as it had over the past several days, Dykes would become enraged when he cranked open the latch, only to find a SWAT team member's rifle pointed directly at him. Dykes grabbed the medicine, slammed the latch shut, and immediately called Lieutenant Rafferty on the phone informing him that he had been teaching Ethan how to detonate the bomb and fire a gun in the event that the FBI decided to try anything funny. He was teaching young, impressionable Ethan how to retaliate. If I'm dead, the kid's going to have access to this trigger. If I fall dead and blood goes every goddamn where, he's going to have access to that weapon, and he's very likely going to get to it and pull that trigger before they will be able to come through that door. Dykes hangs up, but soon calls Lieutenant Rafferty back, emotional again on the phone, but this time shedding tears rather than releasing a similar anger he had demonstrated to the negotiator just hours before. The suspect's voice shudders, seemingly distressed. When Rafferty asked what was wrong, 
he tells the lieutenant that little Ethan had just expressed that he loved him. Let's make it safe for you. Well, well, I just we don't want to do anything to tarnish your story. Well, I want this on record, and I just want the world to know if anything happens like that, you know who's going to be responsible. I'm listening. Okay. You're right. That's it. Okay. Okay, Jim. I got what you're saying. All right, thanks. Okay. I don't. Hey. Yeah. That is not a threat, and that's absolutely the last goddamn thing I would ever. Uh, if, I, if that was to happen, if, if, if anything, if, if I was responsible for him, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be able to go through this. I'd just take myself out with my damn nine millimeter. Okay. Okay. I hear you. But I can't. I couldn't. <laughs> You make sure that he stays. Please make sure he stays. I'm going to. We don't want anything to happen that little boy. I'm going to. You know, Jim, I know you don't know me other than us talking over the last several days, but I give you my word, nothing will happen. Nothing's going to happen. As the movie Ethan was watching blared from the television in the background, FBI drones flew overhead. Replica bombs were being made behind the FBI's mock bunker, recreating explosives that contained what Dykes claims were the components of the second homemade bomb. The old man was upset and confused at the fact that Ethan was growing attached to him, so he urged authorities to, quote, do what they gotta do to get Ethan out of the bunker. This reaction may have been coming from a place where, strangely enough, Dykes found himself becoming attached to the small boy as well. Regardless, it's clear the kidnapper did not enjoy having these emotions. While Jimmy Lee Dykes grappled with the idea of another human being loving him, authorities worked exhaustively and meticulously to plan their rescue mission, as things had progressed to a point where something had to happen sooner rather than later. Sheriff Wally Olson would then appear on the news again that same day, just as he did every day since the child was abducted. He's also allowed us to provide coloring books, medication, toys. I want to thank him for taking care of our child. That's, that's very important. Well aware that Dykes was most likely watching this very newscast from his small, staticky television with rabbit ear antennas, Sheriff Olson used language of appreciation and thanks methodically. Utilizes positive reinforcement here after the confrontation they just had on the phone, presumably to stroke Dykes' ego as he watched the report live happening just above the ground in his bunker. This was only another tactic used by professionals to do everything in their power to keep Ethan alive. That evening, the media would speak with Mrs. Steiner, a close friend of Ethan's family. Reporters asked her if she had one message for Ethan, if he could hear her now from underground of what she would like him to know. Ethan, hang tough, little man. We love you. Day six. Investigators had brought in their one last hope of coaxing Jimmy Lee Dykes out of the bunker amicably with Ethan Gilman by his side before things turned, well, not so peaceful. The last final trick negotiators had up their sleeve was presenting Dykes with his own flesh and blood, 36-year-old Cindy Dykes, Jim's daughter whom he hadn't seen in well over two decades. The FBI had driven from Alabama to Florida in an unmarked SUV two days prior, 
They then returned with Cindy late Saturday morning, put her up in a nearby Holiday Inn hotel, and explained to her that she would need to speak with her father. Federal agents practiced with Cindy, going over precisely how she would approach the bunker and what to say to her estranged father. By this point, police were literally running out of time when Jimmy Lee Dykes set a deadline for 5.30 p.m. that Monday, February 4th, to meet his demands of the female reporter he had wanted since the beginning. It was after this audio recording sent by Dykes to Lieutenant Rafferty that the FBI decided there would be no more waiting to intervene. Just as I said today, by the end of this fucking day, there's going to be a determination as to whether or not you will ever be sitting at that desk again. And there's going to be a determination as to whether or not just exactly what the hell is going to take place. Somebody above that sorry son of a bitch out there, just like I said yesterday, that sorry son of a bitch in the authority above you people, if that sorry son of a bitch doesn't have the man enough to talk to me and treat me and, and, and respond to me and answer some goddamn questions for me and give me some fucking information, then by God, it's his fucking responsibility, the outcome, and you just go ahead and send some motherfuckers down that goddamn funnel up there to their death. And then, by God, just like I said, there'll be lawyers to be dragging up every fucking thing I've said on this phone, and they'll know goddamn exactly who is responsible for this bullshit that's going to take place, or, or that will take place, because of you people, and you're fucking goddamn chicken, you're scared. You know goddamn well I'm smarter than most of you fucking people. You know goddamn well I have the knowledge, I have the experience, I have the ability, and I have the balls to show just how fucking corrupt this goddamn system is, just how corrupt you people are, just how fucking hypocrite you people are, just how stupid you people are, just how you fucking program the goddamn human, the civilians of this nation, just how you manipulate every goddamn body, and just how you want to dictate every goddamn body, and just how you people don't want to make laws that's fair and just for everybody, it's just to control every goddamn body and play one race against a fucking other and one class against a goddamn other, and that's what, and you people are fucking scared. You know goddamn well that what I say when I go public is going to create chaos, going to create riots. All of this guy, they're going people are going to be standing up to this motherfucking dictatorial, incompetent, self-righteous bunch of sorry bastards in government that tell nothing but fucking lies, etc., etc., etc. And you know, goddamn, and I know damn well that's what you people are scared of, is the truth. And if that sorry son of a bitch above you doesn't respond to me by 5.30 this afternoon, I mean by whatever time it is, then by God, I will not be talking to you no fucking more. And that son of a bitch, I'm going to put his ass on fucking notice. February 4th, 2013, Judgment Day. Negotiation attempts had reached their peak. There was nothing left for FBI agents to do but force entry into the bunker. With the assistance of Dykes' long-lost daughter, Cindy, they would utilize her mere presence alone as a tactic to place Dykes in a vulnerable state of mind, hoping to catch him off guard just before storming the underground shelter. At roughly 3 p.m. that day, two officers approached the bunker with a laptop after an agreement was made between all parties that the device would be used for Dykes to video chat with Cindy, after he had been made aware that she had traveled a long way to speak with him. Before receiving the laptop, Dykes seemed excited over the phone, speaking with Rafferty as he had anticipated his daughter's arrival. He even told authorities that he needed a minute to get ready, to change his clothes and brush his hair, before the video call. But there would be no more calls not via video nor telephone, 
and Cindy would never actually get the opportunity to speak with her estranged father. As the latch lifted and Dykes went to receive the laptop, the FBI began their breach by detonating an explosive to blow the bolts off the door. The federal explosives team then pried the partially ajar door open, while a backup team moved forward from behind Dykes's maroon van to the top of the cinder block steps to render aid. One Marine Corps veteran was the first to gain entry, but Dykes had already reached the bottom of the bunker by the time the lid was blown off. Dykes reached for his pistol, firing several shots at the man, who was now trapped by an unseen barricade of wire fencing, a defense mechanism created by Dykes. Jim continues to fire blindly, missing each time. Unable to get past the trap set by Dykes, the agent retreats to safety above ground. Just then, Dykes pulls the tripwire from his end of the PVC pipe inside of the bunker, detonating a bomb that was planted at the old cattle gate entrance to Dykes' property. Plastic shrapnel and shotgun particles shower FBI agents outside the perimeter while smoke funneled back into the bunker, consuming the small space with thick black clouds. Authorities then lowered a police dog into the hole to try to flush Dykes out, but when the German Shepherd was met with a vast abundance of smoke, the dog panicked, becoming stuck on the fence itself, just as the first rescuer had. The dog was pulled to safety from a long leash. Just then, a pack of agents descended back into the hole with bolt cutters, blindly cutting away at the wire separating them from their subject. Non-lethal flash grenades were then tossed into the interior from above, only creating a more non-visible environment inside. The original point man then rushed back in, pistol now in hand, but he dropped his weapon after snagging his arm on the ladder on his way down. He leapt inside sightlessly, throwing his arms forward attempting to grab onto Dykes. But there was nothing. After coming up empty-handed, he tried once again, but this time he feels a small child's head. Certain that it was the boy, the agent huddles over his body, shielding him in a fetal position as he speaks into the five-year-old's ear. You're going to be okay, Ethan. By this point, even more agents have now entered the bunker, choreographed with such precision and speed, flooding Dykes' lair instantaneously. Jim continued to fire his pistol wildly, while three other agents shot back. Dykes was then struck in the face several times by each officer, more than a dozen bullets riddling his frail cheeks, forehead, and neck area. He fell back, landing on the edge of the bottom bunk bed. Authorities ran to Dykes' lifeless body, handcuffed him for good measure, while the original point man picked up little Ethan, running for both of their lives out of the smoke-filled trench. The boy had been saved, suffering no injuries and Jimmy Lee Dykes got exactly what he deserved, a face full of lead. He was reported deceased immediately following the rescue. At approximately 3.12 this afternoon, FBI agents safely recovered the child who has been held hostage for nearly a week. Within the past 24 hours, negotiations deteriorated and Mr. Dykes was observed holding a gun. At this point, FBI agents fearing the child was in imminent danger entered the bunker and rescued the child. The child appears physically unharmed and is being treated at a local hospital. The subject is deceased. 
The resolution in this matter is a direct result of the extraordinary collaboration between law enforcement at all levels. The exhaustive efforts and dedication of this community's law enforcement is truly exemplary. I want to thank everyone in this community that has supported us throughout the past few days. It was mission accomplished and with the best possible outcome. Unfortunately for Dykes, he made it very clear that he wasn't coming out of that bunker alive. Sadly, this was a decision he made for himself, leaving the FBI no other choice but to take the armed man out in order to save an innocent child. Most importantly and miraculously, five-year-old Ethan made it out alive from a hostage situation that took six and a half days to bring to resolution, somehow without any injuries to boot. The astounding efforts of police, the FBI, and the local community of Midland City, Alabama, collectively brought Ethan home. Not to mention, he made it back to the arms of his loved ones just two days before his sixth birthday, a birthday that his family will certainly never forget. Here is Ethan's great aunt and uncle describing the moment when they found out that the suspect was dead and that Ethan had been brought out to safety. I was telling some of the family that, you know, if I could, I would do cartwheels all the way down the the road. I was just ecstatic. Everything just seemed like it was just so much clearer. Uh, You know, we'd all been walking around in a fog, and uh, everybody was just, they was excited. There's no words to put how we felt and how relieved we were. Ethan's great-aunt compares the uncertainty of the boy's time spent in the bunker to, quote, living in a fog. Ironically, the small child had been living in a literal fog of gunpowder and flashbang clouds during a breach that took nearly four whole minutes once the FBI set their plan into motion. A nation that clung to their televisions for six and a half days was now waiting to hear how Ethan was holding up following the incident. The country as a whole was able to take one big shared sigh of relief after the following update from his great-uncle. Oh, he's happy. He's happy to be home, and uh, he's very excited. Um, he, uh, you know, like I said, he's happy to be home, and, and he looks good. He looks good. Midland City rejoiced once Ethan was finally set free. Their positive energy and unity was palpable, and the good in their hearts shined brightly. We had prayed for our little warrior to come out strong and safe and uh, for his mother to wrap his arms around him and to let him know that we've all been praying and for his mother and his family to know we've been praying and it is just it's unbelievable the support that this town has thrown in for this right now we're truly blessed truly blessed to see god work a miracle in our hometown relief that was my first thought and everyone i've spoken to uh, since the news broke this afternoon just a tremendous feeling of relief People were grieving here, and they were grieving, in some ways, the loss of a way of life. Uh, Many people here don't keep their doors locked. Uh, Things are going to change in our community, especially for our school system and maybe other organizations uh, in our area. While the people of Midland City, Alabama, could now rest easy, knowing that Jimmy Lee Dykes would no longer be a threat to their community, residents still wanted answers. How could an event such as this escalate to this point? And what was the reason behind all of this in the first place? The closest we can come to making any sense of it all is hearing from the few people that knew him best. In an interview with the Associated Press, Dykes' friend of several years, Roger Arnold, was interviewed. 
but even he was in the dark of what exactly his good friend had been planning to do all along. Well, I've been friends with him about 13 years. Uh, he lived beside us for about two years in his pickup truck. Every time you've seen him, he always had a 9mm stuck right here in his blue jeans. He was scared of everybody. He was paranoid, very paranoid. He was well intelligent, but, you know, he was anti-government. He believed the government controlled the dogs, and uh, they had a shocking device in the dogs that would stop them from winning if you had bet on that dog. He thought the government would track him with a cell phone, anything electronic he would not have because he swore the government could track and know exactly where he was at. Man, he just snapped. I mean, he snapped. His family had done abandoned him, I know, at least 10 years when he moved out of his sister's. None of them had anything to do with him anymore. I have no idea about the bunker. I mean, all I know is he was building it. I have no idea what it looked like, where it was at, or anything. I knew where he was staying, but he was in his van at the time. He was living in the van. Dykes was a fiscally poor and feeble man who essentially lived in squalor. He seemed to have an obsession with the horse races and racetrack gambling in particular. Another acquaintance of Dykes, Thomas Folds, would also confirm this to be at least a partial motive for his extreme actions also describing Dykes' peculiar behavior and ideologies. He used to keep um, notebooks of horse races. He always said that the mafia run, run the horse races. As odd as this may seem, it's only one contributing factor that may have led a destitute man to rebel against society in such a violent and disturbing way. We may never fully know why Dykes did what he did, or what his manifesto might have entailed, or what would drive him specifically to kill a bus driver he once called a friend and then abduct a five-year-old boy as his personal hostage. But in the grand scheme of it all, none of that really even matters. We won't focus any more energy or efforts towards the analysis of Jimmy Lee Dykes, but instead we will honor the man that deserves recognition the most, the true victim and absolute hero of this story, Charles Poland the bus driver who sacrificed his own life to protect and save the lives of several children, including Ethan Gilman. Had it not been for his courageous efforts, more children may have been harmed, abducted, or potentially killed. Charles Poland is and forever will be remembered as the epitome of moral strength. He will always be viewed as an elevated symbol of what pure human character represents. He's a man that should never be forgotten, It's people like him that remind us the power of good still does exist in a world we most often see as being a cold and dark place. We can only hope that those closest to him find peace in knowing that his legacy and memory is one of undivided greatness and one that they can always be proud of. Alabama Governor Robert Bentley utilized his State of the State address to commemorate the actions of Charles Poland on February 6, 2013, Ethan Gilman's birthday. The people of Dale County who wrap their arms, their loving arms, around the family of that true hero, Charles Poland, a bus driver who gave his life to save those children. For greater love has no one than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends.
it is unfathomable to think what it must have been like for the children aboard School Bus 0-42 that January afternoon in 2013. I look up and he's talking about threatening to kill us all or something. And then he's like, I'll, I'll kill all y'all, I'll kill y'all. I, want, I just want two kids. That's Teresa Singletrary, a 14-year-old elementary school student present on the bus that day, describing how she hid under her seat listening to the traumatizing sounds of screams coming from her classmates and the subsequent rounds let off by Jim Dykes when he murdered Charles Poland. On February 26, 2013, not even a month after Ethan Gilman was rescued, Dykes' underground bunker was destroyed by authorities, who stated that it represented a, quote, biological risk to the local community. Later that year in June, Alabama Criminal Code 13A-7-4.2 was signed into law, known appropriately as the Charles Chuck Poland Jr. Act, forbidding any trespassers onto a school bus, constituting a Class A misdemeanor offense, carrying a minimum of one year in jail. We ask you, our listeners, to remember Charles Poland, to pray for Ethan Gilman, and to pay no heed to Jimmy Lee Dykes. Hold your loved ones tight, but keep your enemies closer, because we never know when a tragedy like this can strike close to home. As far as Ethan Gilman's well-being is concerned, the most recent update we've received is that he's doing well, but that he's having trouble sleeping. And whenever he sees a school bus, he does a double take, locking his eyes, fixated on the big yellow machine. In his latest public television interview, a reputable host asked Ethan the strange question of how he gets to school these days. He quietly stared back at the man, and then ran up to his mother who was present with him in the studio, cupped his tiny hands around her ear, and whispered these five chilling words. My bus driver.